I'm Stuart Buchanan, and you're listening to Out From Under, a weekly radio programme investigating experimental music making in Australia, broadcast on Resonance Extra and podcast by FBI Radio in Sydney. A long while back, I was interviewing Marcus Whale for a radio show, a show that was deeply concerned with doing the right thing by experimental music. During the course of the interview, though, Marcus did something very unexpected. Just when he was talking about his experimental project Scissorlock, a project born out of the context of rigorous and serious academic study at Sydney's Conservatorium of Music, Marcus suddenly and very brazenly professed his deep and profound love for pop music. Now that shouldn't really be surprising, and perhaps in today's climate such a thing wouldn't sound at all apocryphal, but at the time I was taken aback. Experimental music and pop music are supposed to be opposite ends of a continuum. They're literally the polar ends of a very long and complex conversation. They're not supposed to coexist in the same coordinates and time and space. At the time I thought it was so kind of liberating to hear someone freely admit that it was absolutely possible to be a servant to two seemingly disparate masters and that such a duality meant nothing. In retrospect, many years on, it's clear that the duality actually meant everything to Marcus. In the ensuing period, through his projects Collarbones and Black Vanilla, he has taken these two poles and smashed them together again and again in ways that are always visceral and always compelling. You find yourself both wanting to dance and write a thesis at the same time. You just have to give in to the joy inherent in the contradiction. That duality has come to a frothy head on Marcus's debut release under his own name, an album titled Inland Sea. In this week's episode of Out From Under, Marcus takes a wide-ranging look at his career, his personal growth and political intent, and reflects on the outcome. He's reappraising his earlier work in the context of where he now stands, one foot astride both sides of the channel. To take us there, this is the lead track from the album. This is Marcus Whale and Inland Sea. The Inland Sea The cause of The grace of God Will bury the white man The It's long wet in the graves of God. We'll bury the white man whose architecture rings out its ruined breath, whose industry.
I started playing music when I was four years old. I started by playing the piano because my brother was playing the piano. He was doing it because his friend was doing it, and then I did it because he was doing it. Um, and we were all we all had Chinese mothers, and that usually means that they're very enthusiastic about those sorts of activities at classical piano. And both Steve and I um, really took to it and enjoyed it and did all kinds of things like composing little songs, making little recordings on tape recorders at home, um, all these kinds of things that were maybe a step further than your casual engagement with music as a kid. Like this is stuff, like, I think my brother probably wrote his first piece when he was eight or something like that. I might have been a bit older, um, but he was he was kind of a big inf- inspiration early on for my interest in music. It also kind of led to me getting really into Corn uh, and Deftones, who I'm into to this day. I still really love them. So I, I would attribute him to to a lot of my early relationship with music, probably till I was about eleven or twelve. And after that point, I became... He also got me into Tool, which was, which was sort of the start of my teenage years and kind of propelled me uh, and, and sort of informed the way that I thought about music through my teen years, is getting into that sort of alternative rock thing. Um, because that, that sort of led to getting really into post-rock and then experimental music and ambient music. I then became one of those kids, those kind of music nerds, whose identity it was, was the kind of band I was into and also the kind, and then eventually the kind of music I was making. Um, so it was really close to how I represented myself to the world because being a teenager is all about um, finding your identity. Those exercises were all about music for me, listening, playing, going to shows, um, particularly when I was older going to... Um, DIY shows uh, at places like The Pits and Maggotville and Dirty Shallows, places in Mar- Marrickville, those kinds of experiences and the kind of music that was being played there, so from punk to noise to ambient stuff, like more like the stuff I was making, all that was very important to the way that I saw myself. Classical music was always a very important part of my music experience all the way through Um, to this day really now that I think about it so as I said I began playing piano when I was four and I didn't continue it all the way through my high school but I did play saxophone and I had this really formative experience when I was 16 or maybe 15 I had this really great sax teacher, his name's Jim Nightingale, who was very involved, who is still very involved with the contemporary classical music scene. He told me to go to all these different kinds of gigs, um, including getting me my first gig, which was at Gail Priest's sound series called Escapes. So Jim got me that gig, and he also told me to go to this performance by Ensemble Offspring, and they were playing Vortex Temporum by Gerard Grisey. And before then, I'd be really into minimalist music. But 
I had never really explored other types of music that broke down the equal temperament and functional harmony kind of idea about music where where everything is um everything is inside the the keys of the piano and this Gerard Grisset piece which involves a lot of uh, microtonalism and this style of music called spectralism um so going between the keys and then uh into the harmonics of instruments and and the the overtones that kind of style really inspired me and 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 got me really heavily into um finding out how on earth you write in that way how you write music which feels like it's it's coming in waves and and is is blooming like a flower rather than something that's like really boxed in which is how i kind of felt my music was at the time and how i i and i i just really didn't know how to how to make it happen so that that sort of searching is really what led me to to uh enroll at the con i found it a a really interesting exercise to write music write dots on paper and try and realize it with acoustic instruments uh, th- that I thought was was like a really exciting possibility I think and and I I would say in terms of the context with uh all the other music that I was into the the experimental music the pop music the rock music um I was very tribal it's true I was very tribal as a teenager but I was also really interested in the intersections between different styles and you know I think it was actually just being really into lots of different music and being really interested in how I could emulate what I liked and so that just meant for me that there were there were all these different levels um at which I could try and attempt making things
I started Sizzleock when I was 14, uh, and it was a project that I did because I was getting really into, to be honest, into Radiohead and the Mars Volta. That was the, that was, and Pink Floyd. So that was, that was the inception, kind of shamefully. And it was just me on, because at that stage, Audacity was a music program that existed and was free. And so I downloaded it and made all this music by recording directly into the computer. Recording guitar, recording my voice, recording some keyboard, and then just putting one second echo on everything. That was the method. Uh, then I got a delay pedal, which was nice. That kind of helped out a lot. I also got into ambient, some more experimental ambient music like Finesse and Ben Frost. Um, and that kind of showed me that all this stuff that I was, that I was reaching for in this very kind of truly experimental sort of teenage way where I'm, I'm just like, don't know what I'm doing, um, showed me that there was a world of this stuff and it wasn't just the interludes between songs by Radiohead. So that first show I played I remember um, just playing guitar. I played for about 20 minutes and just playing really quietly into a delay pedal. And that was my vibe. That was my vibe for a couple of years, just playing really quietly into the delay pedal, just making these little soundscapes. And I really enjoyed doing it. And the, uh, the loop pedal was the revolution for me, being able to loop sounds not necessarily rhythmically the way that w the way that's very popular these days by buskers um, but just so that I could layer things really thickly and have like lots of different harmonies and m just make make things like thick and immersive I think that that kind of desire to make an immersive sound experience uh, continues to this day and through all the different projects that I've had for me it's about trying to to create a world that you can get lost in or get overwhelmed by and, and I, I think that's also something to do with the 
the feeling, the impulse of playing music in the moment that you that you get and that you learn when you when you play an instrument. Um, it's all about getting involved in the gesture of music making, and so making immersive music, I think, emulates that feeling and, and emulates the the way that your whole body feels involved in the sound. And that was the aim of Sizzlelock, I think, if I can unify it across the nine years that I was doing it. Um, even though the, the style of music changed gr drastically over that time, um, it was about being really, being really immersive, as immersive as I can be. was never very good at editing things in any way across across my whole kind of life um, especially as a teenager you know essays poetry writing of any kind as well as music and so I would usually make things live I might attempt things a few times but I'd usually make ideas live in fact there was a release that I made called loops and errata which I don't have anymore I don't know what it sounds like um, but that was all done live and I mean even the ones that sound like they weren't done as live were done live um, I always use, pro I pro use programs like Audio Mulch um, which is a live program you record live into a file so that was what was second nature to me to record and not edit or edit very scantly that meant that for me to release something wasn't like this huge deal. It wasn't like a lot of mixing went into it, a lot of thought. Again, it's about being in the moment. And I was really interested in, in being impulsive and improvisatory. 
that was important to the project as well, as well as being in the moment. Going to those shows, going to those improv shows and experimental shows and being in the room with people, wanting to emulate that feeling, that relationship between, between the performer and the audience that's so unique to, to the situation. And, you know, shows where there's 23, 20, 30 people there, that feeling is really intimate and really special. And it was special to me because it gave me an identity. So it all kind of links together, I think, that, that, that my music was the way it was and that I released so much. The other thing was that I always wanted to have something to sell at a show. <laughs> it's, it's useful. I don't think I was... I, I, and I had no kind of bones about whether a release was grand enough or not. Even though I, I kind of had these ambitions, I definitely had ambitions of releasing a full-length album on, on Feral Media or on Room 40. Like I had all these ideas. And that did lead to me trying to make stuff in this really particular way and then not releasing it because I could never get a label. So I just kept going with my, my, little, my little releases. I'm Stuart Buchanan, and this is Out From Under. We had a few tracks there from Marcus Whale and his Scissorlock project. We had Broken English 2 from the album of the same name. And we heard Verspers from 2008's Thawing Voices and closing there with the track for Adam. Although the Scissorlock project continued in 2010, Marx's priority shifted to collaboration with Travis Cook, also known as Cyst Impaled, a collaboration they called Collarbones. You can hear traces of the Scissorlock project in Collarbones and the layers and textures and harmonics, but it's also born with a pure pop sensibility. We'll hear Marcus discuss the project in a moment. First, though, from the 2011 Collarbones album Iconography, this is Id. Thank you. 
Collivans was a band that I started with my friend Travis Cook. As the story goes, we met on a forum called afterthepostrock.com and I sought him out because he was another young guy on a post-rock forum and I needed friends who were into the same things as me because I had none. And we chatted on MSN Messenger a lot and I looked up to him a lot and his taste in music. So I really wanted to be in a band with him. Initially, the idea in my head was that we were going to be in an indie rock band because that was what I was into. I wanted us to sound like, um, reaching for a reference point here, I don't know. I, I just wanted us to sound like a band that would be approved by Pitchfork. Um, but instead, we became an electronic group. I think probably by nature of our distance. He lives in Adelaide. I live in Sydney to this day. And it was all about uh, making basically glitch pop, which is a thing, a thing that existed and a thing that was a vibe at the time. There were bands like um, Hood and, uh, you know, elements of Radiohead and, you know, e even, even uh, digitalism and other kind of more popular dance music groups who were using computers to cut, cut up bits of sound. Um, so that kind of form was really useful for us being so far away from each other. And in, in a way, it was, even though the music was popular, it was just as experimental because I was just, we were just mashing, mashing things together in audacity. And you can tell by how lo-fi it is that it's, it's been mashed in that way. Um, I go back and listen to that stuff very, very occasionally. And to me, it sounds like it's in the same zone as that Sizzlelock stuff, even if it might sound stylistically really different. The kind of sound quality, which is very low, is um, endearing in retrospect in a nostalgic way. The methods of collarbones endure to this day in, in some in some respect because um, for me it is about being able to morph sound around in this time around a grid around drums and rhythm I still want the instrumentals to sound like they've been manipulated from another place even though these days they're not they're usually made up of synths and um and less obvious samples, um, but still that spirit of processing something, like taking it from one place to another place, is really inherent in it.
2010, we got um, blogged by Pitchfork when they had the forecast thing, which was for more, for lesser known, but basically people who weren't famous. We were, um, so we were posted by a few blogs, this song called Beeman Park. We were posted by uh, this blog label called Transparent and another one called Asian Man Dan. And this was in the era where blogs ran the world. So much so that a website like Pitchfork was forced to have a blog, the podcast. Um, and often their posts would be kind of reposts from some of these blogs. And so Larry Fitzmaurice, who was the editor of Podcast at the time, must have just been trolling through and decided that it was the right thing to post at the time. This was during the chill wave craze, uh, which took us by storm, if I'm honest. This, this sort of spirit of the type of sampling involved in chill wave, the feeling of nostalgia, um, the possibility that you could create universes out of out of static objects like that was really exciting to Travis and I. And also to a lot of other people who would be blogged by Pitchfork around that time, 2010. Um, in fact, friends of ours, Fishing, were also posted at a similar time, making kind of similar music, which is very sample-based. Um, and that moment for us was a really uh, positive and gave us a lot of confidence made us made it really possible for us to go to labels and say hey we mean something to the world and can you please release us so I, I think if without that we probably wouldn't have had the same trajectory that we did we rode that for a couple of years you know pitchfork approved colorbrands um but that time 2010 2011 there was a huge appetite for people making um, slightly different sounding, electronic sounding stuff. And it was all kind of lumped together in some way. It, the, the kind of bigger sounding stuff like, like Flume, although that was maybe a bit later, 2011, 2012. And then, you know, the weirder stuff, which I think we were probably proponents of at that time. Like all our production was, was bonkers, like really strange. Now, now that I kind of look back on it, um, people just really wanted it. And if, if, if we came out with the kind of stuff that we make, we made then, if we came out with it now, I don't think it would be very successful because everyone has higher standards for this stuff and much more cultivated tastes. Like the last five years have really uh, seen this like big evolution in the way that people listen and what they listen out for in music. And so we've had to change with it. But I think that if, if we go back to 2010, there was a, a real vibe at the time and an atmosphere. Um, so there, there was us, but we kind of came on the coattails of people like CK, um, who themselves came on the coattails of people like Pivot. And, and there were other people around, like Fishing. But I think also, in particular, there was an appetite for music that was not very genre, um, that was a bit... To the side, I think people maybe had gotten a little bit sick of what became quite quite a, a very successful kind of standardized sound and genre coming out of that modular label, um, and were therefore really 
hungry for something that was electronic and pop, but a little bit different and kind of hard to define. I think that's probably why why it was easier for us then than it would be for anyone else coming up now trying to do that sort of thing. It's in the cut, it's in the blood, I know how it goes. It's in the way, I look at him, he makes me sweat, thinking of the end. It's in the trust, it's in the word, don't know how it goes anymore. It's in the way, I know him, he makes me bottom line with the way that Collarbones changed is that I got really heavily into pop music and I wasn't before until maybe 2009, 2010, 2019, 20. Um, and I got really heavily into Aaliyah and Beyonce, Destiny's Child, um, Ciara, mostly, mostly women. And, you know, people like Frank Ocean were, were sort of coming out and um, putting... M- sort of side comments on that conversation as well. That whole conversation, the weekend in, in included, how to dress well, like all these different um, takes on pop music, I suppose specifically R&B. That whole conversation really grabbed me at the same time as being into music like hate rock and stuff like that. And so it was became less about playing with sound and trying to make kind of interesting pop music with disparate sounds and it became about trying to create the power of pop music in a context that was um, foreign or unfamiliar Um, and and that that power became really important and especially the way we made albums so after that first album iconography the second one and the third one were both conceived in a very unified way and meant to kind of come across as a whole body of work that sort of conceptual atmosphere I think we just got a lot better at Um, and then it became about how can we make this song have depth in the context of the album and I think by extension it it just made the music we were making a little bit more um, a little bit richer a little bit denser and yeah I I think just the feeling of it rather than the aesthetic of the sound um, t- 
took over like the whole feeling of, of it like my singing the songwriting that became the center of it and just putting that into an interesting context that's marcus whale they are talking about collarbones one out from under his collaborative project with adelaide producer travis cook and we played out with the most recent collarbones track titled the cut we also heard in their teenage dream from the 2012 album die young and flush from 2014's return this month marcus drops his debut album under his own name inland sea a deeply personal and introspective album that asks questions about colonialism and race and gender politics and is both a logical and surprising culmination of everything we've heard on the show so far. Experimentalism, avant electronics, and a thirst for pop and R&B. But before we get there, there's one more project that completes the jigsaw. Black Vanilla, as it was originally named, now simply BV. This is a brand new release from them. This is Huh. Black Vanilla was really just a fun project initially that I wanted to do. Well, that kind of naturally happened between Laverne Lee, who at the time was called Gare and is now called Cassius Select and Fake, um, and then also Jared Beeler. We were all very into R&B at the time, like reg- regrettably into R. Kelly, um, which was kind of our number one reference point, if I'm honest. Uh, and it was, it was a little bit of a joke band. That's also a bit regretful as well because it's, it's, it's not something to laugh at, I don't think. Um, so Black Mill was initially meant to be a live project only, no recordings, and we didn't do any recordings for two years. Um, and that liveness is, I think, the, the whole kernel of what the project is, as opposed to Colburn's, as opposed to my solo stuff. It's about the feeling in the room, in, the, in this case, sort of clubbier music maybe, but not genre club music, not like house music or techno. Um, it's about creating something that's really visceral and, and grabs you and is all rhythm based. Now there's like almost no, no harmony or singing in it. We're called BV now, it's, it's, all, it's all a bit kind of funny and um, it's like we're an EBM band or something, um, but the 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 whole yeah the whole thing with that is with BV now is that is that it's meant to be really f- very physical in the moment, rhythmic, loud, aggressive, um, and and also there's a political dimension which is important to us as well that it's um, I think B- BV is about resistance to dominant social hierarchies. So um, the the primacy of whiteness 
of heterosexism, um, gender binary, like all that kind of thing, which I think is is evolved out of the way that club music, the the sort of initial forms of it, like disco and house music and techno, were all about resistance and were all about safe spaces um, and al having alternative um, zones for people who are oppressed. So. None of us are black, but, we, but we're all people of color in some way. Um, and I think that's important to the project. I decided to do Inland Sea two and a half years ago, partly because there was, um, I felt a real need to express things that are not possible in collarbones, and weren't possible in scissor lock either, because there were ideas that needed to have a lead vocal, and weren't expressible in BV because they were really about me, like my story. It's a bit self-indulgent, and I don't apologize for that, I don't think. <laughs> for me, it was, it was an exercise in trying to be truthful with myself in the songs that I was writing rather than going for a type of style. And so for Collarbones, that meant the pop music style, which is often to do with love songs. Not that, that, not that this album doesn't have them, it does. And I needed to write songs about me as me and my position in Australia, to be blunt. Um, I was questioning a lot how we can conscientiously occupy this space, which has never been ceded by First Nations. It's never been a treaty. And I mean, I still question that. Um, and it's and it's not. There's no satisfying answer to that question until we have a treaty. Um, 
and I was also thinking about um, queer, my queerness in Australia, and and what the origins of that are, and 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 what what I can do to to resist against the the really palpable assimilative force in Australia, which is good for some people. Like, don't get me wrong, it's it's good. Marriage is good for some people, um, but uh, I, I think we've lost the the kind of original, in the first instance, the point of gay liberation, which is to destroy sexual identities entirely rather than to assimilate into heterosexism. Uh, so those two threads, which were really deeply about who I am, um, were what sparked me into making... Inland Sea. So a, a lot of those queer origin stories came from this book that was given to me by uh, an older man called Martin, who was quite a strange man, um, who was a friend of the mother of this uh, guy called Julian who I used to sing with. And I think he saw an opportunity in me to to create a sort of s- protege of some... I don't know. I think he wanted to pass on the knowledge from the gay elders of Sydney and gave me this book, which was all on uh, queer history in Australia. The origins, the different uh, different stories along the way of how we have come to this present identity. So a lot of the content on the album comes from that, comes from reading that and, think, and trying to think about what, what that means for me, where I stand. Um, and then a lot of questioning, I think, as well of Australian culture as a very homosocial culture. And when you intersect that with, with desire, um, th- there's a lot of very complicated things in there that I wanted to unpack, like like the fetishization of maleness and masculinity, um, both sides of it, both both the kind of um, the desire to, to be submissive to it and the potential for that to be radical as well. But then the way that that, mimics our like societies in general uh, patriarchal impulse to 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 glorify the man um, and and that's also another thing I don't have a satisfying answer for in a way inland sea is just all about having no answers and just uh, all questions and searching for something the act of searching
the inland sea that's spoken about in the album is referencing the search for the inland sea by early explorers. Um, the idea there is that I want to imagine that the inland sea was never, dis was never discovered and exists and therefore is a place beyond the colony and beyond the, the hierarchical power of the colony and so therefore um, is a place of agency, a place of escape from the auspices of power and then to a place of agency. And it's a bit of an, an utopia, it was a literally a utopian idea, um, but it's one that I think we, we can all look to as a kind of horizon, um, the possibility of overturning the sort of inherent injustice of, of the way that, that society, co colonized society works. Yeah, and so there's a lot of magic, magic in it for me, like the, the, the magical possibility of something beyond, um, it's ineffable, like you can't hold it, you can't define it, you can't find it. Uh, so it's against ex the expansion of the empire. So th that's, that's kind of the heart of it for me, is like this is, this is where we can be, this is where people can be nurtured if, if they've been banished, ostracized. I, I suppose that's the, the reason for referencing it. Two mountains high. debut album Inland Sea that's Marcus Whale and Arcadia. We also heard fragments from the album tracks Vulnerable and Blood Moon. You can find out more about the project at marcuswhale.com That's all from Out From Under from this episode. You can find the show on Facebook and Instagram as Out From Under Radio and we're also on email at outfromunderradio at gmail.com. You can find previous episodes on the Residence Extra Mixcloud and courtesy of FBI Radio on our podcast feed through iTunes. I'm Stuart Buchanan. I'll be back around again next week for another episode of Out From Under. Let's play out, though, with a track from Inland Sea. This is Milk. Here's the smell of It's an
In the milk of that 